So today we are getting into the portion of Romans 7 that people identify with most. We mentioned it was coming last week. We've mentioned several times that it's coming because it is one of those passages that we long to see. Paul's struggle with sin is how we might label this passage. But as we we enter this, this vivid and engaging description, we must remember what we said last week, that it's not primarily about our incessant struggle to gain victory over sin. That's not the primary theme of Romans chapter 7. Surely it's there. It's the part that captures our attention and captures our imagination. But it's not the primary theme of this chapter. It's actually, Romans 7 is about the believer's relationship to the law as Paul is explaining the gospel to this church in Rome. The law being... God's revelation to his people at Sinai, the the expectation that he has of them if they are to live in covenant relationship with him. The law couldn't remove the sin that was in the hearts of his people, but if they lived according to the law, they could engage with God in the ways that he described. He's establishing covenant with them, and here's the covenant expectations of what it takes to live in relationship with a holy God, even having become sinful. And the the whole sacrificial system is at the heart of that. With the blood of bulls and goats symbolically standing between the sinner's sin and the holiness of God, all localized at the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant that was in the tent of meeting as uh, Moses built it with Israel according to the instructions given along with the law. That mercy seat, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament word is the word as propitiation that we saw in Romans 3 when we were looking at that word. You recall us talking about that word, that big word that has such profound meaning. And propitiation happened at the mercy seat. That's the law. What's the believer's relationship with the law? That which God has revealed in himself with regard to the perfect standard that needs to be kept in order for us to remain in relationship with him. So this is the central theme of Romans 7. And Romans 7 then is Paul's defense of the law being good even though he has said that it belongs to the realm of Adam, the flesh, sin, and death, that it has essentially joined forces with sin, the law has, that it helps sin advance its cause. That's what we were hearing in the first part of Romans 7. So this text is needed as an explanation of a vastly important point before moving on in his argument. Is the law sinful? And that's the question Paul poses. And it's very clear why the Jews or why Jewish Christians even um, would struggle with Paul's view of the law. It's not hard to understand at all. As one commentator summarized, and I appreciate the brevity of this, really considering Galatians chapter 3 verses 10 and following in that chapter, and I appreciate that because one of our groups is studying Galatians right now, a wonderful partner to the book of Romans. But from Galatians three ten and following, we see how 
Paul taught that the Torah, the, the law of Moses, brings a curse. How he explains that it is subsidiary to the promise made to Abraham because it comes along 430 years later. We've seen in Galatians 3 how the law produces transgressions. How it was given via angels instead of directly from God. And how it has no power to grant life. So it's not at all hard to understand why, why those from a Jewish background, even if they've embraced faith in Christ, would have a real concern about how Paul views the law. So that's one reason to go into this explanation in the, the latter part of Romans chapter 7, even though Romans chapter 7 verse 6 sets up Romans 8 so well. Paul has to, to defend what he's talking about here, lest we come away with the understanding that perhaps the law is not good. In fact, it's become a partner with evil. But there's one more clarification we should make as well before we move into this passage, and it will aid our understanding greatly as well to understand what's going on. That's the question, who is the I in Romans 7? Paul keeps saying, I did this, I did that. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, verse 15. Or, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Who is the I? That is such a profound question that any commentator writing on Romans 7 is going to spend a long time addressing that question because it can get confusing if you try to make the I one person or one period of time. It, 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 it gets murky. But just to summarize, so you'll appreciate the point, there are essentially three possibilities that it boils down to. Who is the I? First, the I refers to Adam. Adam's experience with God and with God's command in the Garden of Eden. In fact, one very recognized commentator makes a compelling statement that many quote that everything in this passage is true of Adam and Adam is the only one for whom everything that this passage says is true. So it's truer of Adam than of any other. And you might say, well, why is Paul all of a sudden talking about Adam? I actually don't think he is. But that's why Adam is one of the possibilities of who the I is as Paul is writing here in Romans 7. Second possibility, it designates Israel's experience after receiving the law at Mount Sinai. We hear in this text how what I was before and then what I was once after the law has come. So Israel is one possibility uh, following the receiving of the law at Mount Sinai. Third, and this is the one that we kind of default to, but there are some real challenges with this one. The I is Paul himself. It's autobiographical, denoting the experience of Paul himself. The problem is there wasn't any time where Paul was around before the law. The law didn't come during Paul's lifetime. Uh, Paul himself was dead in sin when he was born. There wasn't a time when he was free of it. There, there are several challenges with it, but in summary, this last view, number three, the fact that it's Paul being autobiographical, but also, can we say trans-temporal? Paul speaking autobiographically, but speaking of himself as a representative of all humanity, really. This last view, the commentator wrote, is the closest to the truth. 
though the first two contain truth since Paul's life replicates the history of Adam and the history of Israel. So, in summary, Paul relays his own experience because it establishes a paradigm for his readers, showing the fate of all those who are under the law. We can also understand why so many scholars see a reference to Adam or to Israel here, for reasons I just alluded to a moment ago, since Paul's experience recapitulates the history of Adam with God's commands given in the garden and of Israel's experience with the giving of the law. Still, the focus here is on Paul's experience, though what Paul says relates to all human beings. So he's speaking personally of himself, but representative of us all in this passage relates to all human beings that our encounter with the law produces death in us, not life. So even if we weren't alive at the giving of the law, Romans 7 speaks of us as though we were. That a a, a pre-Christian place, and then the law of God is revealed, and our understanding of sin results, and then where we go from there. Paul is talking about himself, but he's also talking about you and me as readers so many centuries later. So let's see how Paul puts all this together and just walk through the text according to the questions that Paul himself poses. His three questions really do identify the flow of this passage, and you can see them there. The first two come right at the head of the paragraph in which they appear. The third one is toward the end of that paragraph, but it's still the question that captures uh, the, the sense of what's being communicated there. So we will look first, is the law sin? Verses 7 through 12. Second, did that which is good become death to me? Verses 13 to 20. And then who will deliver me from this body of death? So the questions in 7, 13, and 24, if you want to jot that down. But we'll just follow them through the text, all right? Question number one, is the law sin? Let's begin right here in verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? you remember we set this up last Sunday. We said that if we're following Paul's line of reasoning in the first six verses of chapter 7, that this would be the needful next question to ask because it sounds like the law has forged a partnership with sin and therefore is sinful in and of itself. So it's, it's the natural question to ask. What shall we say? That the law is sinful? What is Paul's answer? We've heard it before. He uses it a number of times in Romans. By no means, in no way, he's saying, is the law sinful. But we came to an understanding last week of the fact that, wow, if it's not sin, it's producing sin in me. It's making me more sinful. How can something that's good make me more sinful? Well, that's exactly why Paul had to write verses 7 through 25 before going on to Romans 8. So his answer is, by no means, but then he continues, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. He's drawn in all of verses 1 through 6 with that statement. For I would not have known what it is, for instance, to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. This now is what Paul calls a transgression in Romans. A word that means a going aside. Uh, Sin is inherent in us from Adam. We inherit sin 
by birth. We're born into sin. Transgression comes when we break the law. There's a difference between these two words. They're both talking about sin, and we have up until now used them interchangeably just to avoid having to describe the difference and, and, and follow that line through Romans because it isn't necessary at different points. Here it becomes clear. We're talking about the state of sin into which we're born and then transgression where we break the law of God once we've understood what it says. Two different categories of our sinfulness that Paul is talking about here. So when the law sets the standard, not only does transgression become clear where I've broken the law, but what Paul is saying here is that because of sin within us, once the law is stated, I'm driven to disobey it. I naturally rebel. We, we, we can talk when we're correcting our children about forbidden fruit. It's an image that comes from the Garden of Eden. And all the way back to that date, when something is forbidden to us, we're going to try it. We think it's going to have something for us. There's got to be a reason it's forbidden, and therefore I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to give it a shot and see, and I'll always be able to move away from it once I've tried it to see, why is this forbidden? <laughs> That's who we are. Paul's helping us understand why that is so. Why are we so driven to do that which is forbidden? The whole garden was available to Adam and Eve. One tree needed to be avoided. That's what Paul's talking about here. I would not have known what covetousness is if the law hadn't said, don't covet. But we'll chase after anything that's forbidden. Verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The things that I only mildly desire before now, I really want them. Covetousness is awakened just by hearing the law, and that's what happens in a sinful, rebellious heart. We're so used to it, it barely seems strange to us anymore. The thought is, of course that's true. Or, I don't seize every opportunity to covet something. All right, well, now we're, we're offending a different point of the law, right? Don't bear false witness, comes to mind. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. What Paul is saying is, yeah, I can see that maybe I'd coveted something before, but when the law says, with a standard of absolute perfection, don't covet, not only leave aside for the moment that I'm driven toward covetousness, just recognize for a moment all the different ways that I recognize, wow, I'm doing this all the time. There's also something within us that says, oh, I'm already coveting. I may as well just go ahead and covet everything. Paul picked a rather benign one, but a rather familiar one to illustrate his point. We'll chase after anything that's forbidden. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, producing me all kinds of covetous. Notice what Paul does here as well. And this is profoundly important for appreciating Romans 7 and understanding Romans 7. He begins describing sin as a person. 
Sin is personified. He begins describing sin as a person with a will and a purpose and intent. Sin is going after something. Sin seized the opportunity provided by the commandment. Sin has a mind and a will and an intent. Seize the opportunity provided by the the commandment you shall not covet and produced all new levels of sin within me. Sin builds its kingdom in response to the law. Our battle against sin is so hot, it is so intense, it is so fearsome, even after trusting Christ as Savior, that the only way to speak of it accurately and truthfully and and, in a way that's experientially relevant for all of us is to turn it into a person. An enemy. A living being. And an intentionally malevolent opponent who engages the full force of its will and power to destroy us. This is how the enemy works against the people of God. We are at war, make no mistake. And the hardest part of that war is that if sin actually were a person, it would be incredibly easier. Someone we could see and confront and run from when we see them coming. But that's not how it works. Sin, in its essence, is invisible. And so are the ones who magnify the power of sin. Familiar verse, Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Sin dwells within us, and those are its allies, magnifying its impact. And seeking nothing but the destruction of the believer who would have the gall to trust in Christ as Savior. God help us. Amen? If this is our experience, God help us. Paul then moves into a vivid chiasm that that needs to be identified that way. And I appreciate the work of Doug Moo pointing this out. Because otherwise, we could really struggle with the end of verse 8 there. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And and the answer is, no, it isn't. Death goes back, death reigns since Adam. We saw that earlier in Romans. Sin was always around even before the giving of law. What do you mean? Well, that's not supposed to be a standalone statement. There's a chiastic statement that's happening at the end of verse 8 into verse 9. You know that, that the, the parallel statements, there's an A and then a B and then a B prime and then an A prime, that, that kind of structure? That's what Paul's doing in verses 8 and 9, it appears. Clearly, he isn't talking about literally being alive and then dead. That's why we need to notice that the structure of this statement that he's using is a literary structure to make a point. 
He's saying essentially in verses 8 and 9, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The reason we don't see it very clearly is it's not laid out quite as clearly as some of the chiasms are in other parts of the word. But essentially what Paul is saying here is before the law was given, sin was dead and I was alive. But once the law was given, sin came to life and I died. Lou goes on to write, this does not mean, of course, that sin did not exist before the law was given, but that it was not as active or powerful before the law as after. Once the law is given and God's expectations are made known, sin comes alive in my heart and I'm dead meat. And I recognize it. If I'm honest with myself at all, the only alternative is to continually deny my sinfulness or to think that somehow I can take care of the problem. Before the law was given, I sensed that I was alive. I was fine. Then the law came, sin came alive, and I'm dead. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And why? What's the key element that turns something good, namely the law, the revelation of God's standard for, for living in covenant relationship with himself? What's the key element that turns something good into something that brings death to us? It's sin. The sin into which we are born and which we begin progressing through our own transgressions. Sin is the key element here. Our personified enemy that still lives within us. That is in our flesh. Verses 17 and 18. We'll get to that. Even though we've been eternally freed from its condemnation and power by faith in Christ. Even though that's happened, we're still in this battle. Our sin is still present with us even though we're freed from its condemnation in Christ. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Paul's still talking about coming into the faith here and he'll continue on and explain how it progresses. Moving, by the way, from past tense into present tense as the passage progresses. As to this verse 11, I could explain this further. Paul actually does a better job as we just continue on through the text. So we're going to keep moving at this point. But first, before we move on into the second section, Paul does give a direct answer to the first question he posed back in verse 7. And he does it in verse 12. After all of this, bottom line, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What we're mistaking is the sin that dwells in us and its response to the law for the nature of the law itself. But the law is good, holy and righteous and good. And sin in me seizes that. And I would say it's, it's impotence to actually save me. The law just reveals my sin. It doesn't give me a solution to my sin. So sin within me seizes upon that and says... <laughs> There's no salvation here. I know just what to do with this. 
I'll magnify the experience of the believers and my will will be done. That's how sin speaks. So, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But if that's true, moving into verses 13 through 20, did that which is good then bring death to me? If the law is good, I'm still dead. Clarified by every statement of the law. But again, comes that answer that Paul has given and will continue to give. By no means. May it never be. No, absolutely not, is what he's saying. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, namely the law. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, the law is actually doing its work, revealing sin. The standard is set. Our response is what it is, rebellion. It's like, see, there's the problem. That's exactly what the law is doing, revealing sin to be sin. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, verse 13. That it might be exposed, so to speak, made visible. To borrow an image from Jesus in John 3, that the, the, the invisible wind is made visible as it moves the leaves on the trees, for instance. When the law is given, sin becomes visible because I act in opposition to the law, revealing the state of my heart. The evil nature of sin then is proven by how it moves me to receive and rebel against the holy and righteous and good law of God. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I am mortal. I am vulnerable. I am sinful even. Sold under sin. I'm in bondage to it. Helpless in the face of its power perhaps able to effect a small victory here or there, maybe. We won't lose sight of that. There are occasions on which we can hear the law and attempt to do what's good, but the motive is even sullied. So it does us no good. It surely can't bring about the perfection that the law demands. So even if I can muster up the energy to do something selfless that that might actually reflect something I heard in the law, it still doesn't meet the standard of the law. Because I'm sinful already. And that's what confuses me about myself. That's what confounds me about myself. That's what the I in Romans 7 is struggling with. Why is it that I can't do the thing I'm intending to do? This language becomes so clear that we, we, we lose touch with the frustration of this. Oh, when we're in the midst of it and we're struggling with sin, we recognize it. But even there, I don't know that it penetrates our hearts as deeply as it should to, to recognize the frustration of my mind telling me to do something and my body doing something else. That's crazy. But that's what Paul is talking about here. This is what confuses and confounds me about myself. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. Sin makes me a stranger to myself. I do not do the thing I want. (coughs) Excuse me, but the very thing I hate, that's what I do. This begins to show the massive challenge that we're facing, the 
begins to explain the struggle in language we can appreciate. Sin is an outside enemy <coughs> excuse me, that enslaves its captors until we're finally executed, every one of us, when sin has its way. So it's an external enemy that enslaves us, and yet it dwells within us. Verses 17 and 18, verse 20. This is a tough situation. But there's more we need to learn along the way. Excuse me. Verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want... Here's the first thing we learn. I agree with the law that it's good. See, we, we, we've gotten ourselves caught in a snag here. The law is good because it's showing us how we're bad. God's perfect standard is doing that. So this is the first thing Paul learns when he sees this struggle that's going on in himself. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. It, it, it's this statement, honestly, that most helps us see how broad Paul's argument is here. And how it touches on all of humanity and our relationship with the law, our relationship to God. This statement is true for everyone who hears it. Believer and unbeliever alike. For the unconverted who hate God or even deny His existence, they still have this experience that Paul is talking about here. This experience of not being able to live up even just to their own expectations of what is good. This isn't a strange experience to humanity. Even those who deny God know what this is like, know what this feels like. And this very struggle displays why they're accountable for their sin before God as well. Remember, His eternal power and divine nature are made known to them through what has been made. We tend to think of that only as nature, the glories of the heavens and so forth. But even more, it's the conscience that resides within His image-bearing creatures that even when they deny His existence, they don't think of it as His standard they can't meet. They recognize it as their own. They can't do the thing that they want and the thing they don't want to do, they keep on doing. His eternal power and divine nature are made known to them in this experience to the point where they realize they're missing a standard even if they can't clearly articulate what that standard is. That's not part of the requirement. Just recognizing the tension of the fact that there is something in me that demands a certain behavior and I can't meet it. So frustrating if you don't understand the broader context and have a relationship with Christ, but that's where this world lives, in this frustration and no hope of escape. So we deaden it with substances or we fool ourselves into believing that the things that we do actually do hit the standard. But you hear anybody talk about it, and unless there are far deeper struggles, you'll hear it exhibited in how they account for their actions. I cannot do the good that I long to do. That's unbelievers. For believers, 
We see here how sin still dwells within us even after we're freed from its condemnation and power by faith in Christ. That is really, really important. For believers, we see how sin still dwells within us even after we're freed from its condemnation and power by faith in Christ. We're still living in the realm of Adam even though we have the down payment on the realm of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. This freedom shows itself as we press on in our battle against sin. We're freed from sin's condemnation and power, and we show that by fighting it. We don't always win. We often lose, but we help one another along in that. And the whole experience of the the, the believer and the community of believers is part of what we could talk about here, about how this works. But our freedom from the condemnation and power of sin shows itself as we press on in our battle against sin, hopeless as that can feel at times, proving the power of the resurrection that's our inheritance in Christ. There's where the believer lives during these days. So verse 16 is for everyone. And the undeniable implication is that our recognition of the goodness spoken by that inner voice in our ear, which we can't please, proves the goodness of God's law just as it proves the power of sin within us. And it does both at the same time. Verse 17, so now... It is no longer I who do this, but sin that dwells in me. This one could bother us. This, just to cut straight to the bottom line of what it could sound like, is not a denial of personal responsibility. All right? This is not Paul saying, I'm not responsible for my own sin. Quite to the contrary. it's, It's where the passage really heats up and the nature of the battle becomes even more clear. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I'm responsible, but I do see the problem. And although it's not hopeless, it's a big problem. And it can feel hopeless on any given day, even for the believer. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I know that there's nothing that commends me to God. That's unmistakably proven by the fact that, continuing on in verse 18, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We might even say to carry it out consistently. It seems like I continually get ensnared in the same kinds of sin, even if the face is a little different than last time. I'm vulnerable to all sin, but there are some that are particularly difficult for me to navigate through or around without just being ensnared by them. Again, this is a big problem. And I already know that nothing good dwells in my flesh. And I can see that by the fact that I desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And that's what helps us see, come to the strange conclusion that we read in verse 20, that we've already seen it alluded to before. Now, if I do what I do not want, It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Repeated now. Again, this is not 
Paul denying responsibility. But something within us, something within us is desiring to do good. It just can't. And that's an important thing to see in this passage. The I wants to follow Christ. There's the inbreaking. There's the inbreaking of the new heavens and the new earth. By faith in Christ, sins removed, propitiation received, Holy Spirit taking up residence, resensitizing the conscience of the believer so that now things that didn't even seem sinful before are far more sinful than I ever realized. And yet, there's hope. There's something within me that actually longs for that now. Don't miss that. Something within us is desiring to do good and is kept from it. It just can't. That's an important thing to see as well. We have an enemy that's imprisoned us, and sin is that enemy. And even once we've been freed from its condemnation and power, we've seen already in Romans how hard it is to learn how to live into the freedom that is ours in Christ. It's a battle. A lot of times we just think it shouldn't be this hard. Really? You are transformed from death unto life, from a state of condemnation by a holy and omnipotent God and been reconciled now to Him such that you're clothed in the holiness of His Son and you don't think the transition from the one to the other is going to be hard? Wow, it's incredibly hard. Paul's letting us know just how hard that is in this text. We have an enemy that's imprisoned us and it is hard to learn how to live into the freedom that is ours in Christ. And even though we're freed from sin's condemnation and therefore its power, we'll not know that freedom fully and finally until sin is entirely removed from this world. In the new heavens and the new earth. And we're getting set up for that. We'll hear more about that in chapter 8. But for now, we're going to move on into this final section. So, Paul writes, verse 21 as he begins moving toward the close of this quick defense of the good law. So, I find it to be a law. There's our our title today. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Can you say amen to that? Hmm. For I do delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's how we know Paul isn't still in the unsaved state He's moved into the present tense of his current reality and he is struggling with sin right here and now, still to this day. I do delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, another metaphor here, meaning I watch myself live out something different. I do delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law It's waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that still dwells in my members. So I'm trapped in this hideous scene. Even though I've trusted in Christ as Savior, this could feel really, really dark this morning. 
if we don't know that Romans 8 is coming. <clears throat> you think that Romans 8 is one of the most glorious passages in the scriptures, and it is precisely because it pulls us out of what we're seeing right here. It's reminding us of what is also true, even while this is true. I'm trapped in this hideous scene, even after trusting Christ as Savior. It's like a nightmare. You know the feeling. Your mind tells your body to flee from the danger that's threatening you in your dream. But it's like you're encased in concrete. You can't move. can't speak. You can't escape even though your life depends on it. Familiar nightmare? It's not a nightmare, folks. It's life in this world. But it's actually worse. You can't escape even though your life depends on it, but it's actually worse. The enemy is inside you. You wake up and it's still there. pulling the strings of your body in opposition to the desires of your mind so that you become like a puppet on a stage. Doing whatever sin determines. You tell your hand, don't touch that. But your hand touches it anyway. And you're forced to stand and watch. That's the struggle Paul's describing here. Your struggle, you're forced to stand and watch, owning responsibility for what your hand is doing. It's the only way to capture that I want to do this and I don't. You tell your eyes, don't look there. But they look anyway. And, and all that you wanted to divert them from just flows into your mind and heart through that gate. Horrifying, sitting there in that state, fully responsible for what's going on. That's disturbing, isn't it? It's dehumanizing. My mind sends one signal and my body follows another. And it's all the worse now that you've trusted Christ as Savior and gained an understanding of just how bad sin is. That's the only thing that gets us ready for Paul's third question. It's the reason why I think it's at the end of this section, not the beginning. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's a true question for any unbeliever. But even for a believer, when I see what's in my own heart, that question is still present with me, even after I've trusted Christ as Savior. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And although his answer is framed for the believers who ask this question, the answer is the same even for unbelievers. 
The answer is in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For believers, this thanks expresses heartfelt gratitude for God's merciful deliverance that that promises full freedom from this enemy of sin once all is finally set right in this sin-saturated world. For unbelievers, this thanks should express heartfelt gratitude for the fact that deliverance is even possible through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there is a way of escape. And my friends, if you have not received that today, today is the day. Here's our battle. And our loving and merciful God has provided a way out. So then, continuing on in verse 25, I myself, as a believer here now, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I am still incessantly tempted to serve the law of sin. And there's where we finish today. If you've been drawn into Paul's argument here, you may be tempted to respond, (laughs) wait a minute, I'm getting shortchanged here. Don't just finish by restating the problem more clearly, Paul. That's not helpful. Give me an answer. What do I do with this? Because of that, let's conclude with two thoughts. First, Paul has given us the answer already right there in verse 25. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He's provided all that we need to escape from this horrifying trap through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the first thought. Second, his very next words, and what an unfortunate chapter break this is, his very next words give us this same assurance in an even more delightful way, and it's the on-ramp into the chapter we've been waiting for since we started. His very next words, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Have you ever heard a better statement? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is our title for next Sunday. That's where we're headed. Bottom line today, we have a mortal enemy who's bent on our destruction. If we do not beat him, we die. And he's literally infinitely more powerful than we are. So there really is no hope. Except that another player, a champion who's infinitely more powerful than our enemy has defeated him and made a way of escape for us. Even though we'll have to continue battling this enemy until the appointed day of our champion's return happens. We only became aware of how serious this battle is because our champion made it known to us. That happened in the giving of the law. Now, unfortunately... Our having the law magnifies the power of our enemy. 
because he can work within us to break it now that we see so many different ways that that's possible. But this is also what shows us just how badly we need our champion's deliverance and how vital it is to battle our enemy furiously with all the resources our champion has provided until the day he returns and so that we might be standing firm on that day. There it is. That's what has Paul saying here. Thanks be to God that he has indeed provided our deliverance through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. And as we pray, musicians, please return to the front and communion servers join me at the table. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that Paul took a few minutes to make these points before moving on to chapter 8. Our hearts were already hungry for what is to come as we finished last week's text, but what a helpful reminder it is to see how deep and intense is the battle of these days. We can convince ourselves, Lord God, that because we've trusted Christ, it should be easier. But Paul is helping us know that that is anything but the truth. What we have is an assurance that can never perish or spoil or fade, but the battle between here and now is a genuine war for life and death. And I pray, Lord God, that you would strengthen each of us by faith this day to trust in the finished work of Christ on our behalf and to labor hard to live into the freedom from sin that is ours because of his victory won at the cross. And as your people, Lord God, gather at the table now, May we, through this act of remembrance, be strengthened in that battle in the week ahead to the praise of your glory and grace that has saved us through the work of your Son and given us your Spirit to work within us toward the ends that you have appointed. Amen.